Today, you'll notice I am not Pastor Paul, um, unless he had a Benjamin Button disorder, but he is away uh, this weekend, uh, taking some time for some very focused prayer. As you know, we've entered into a season of prayer and fasting that he called last week, and we uh, appreciate you praying for him as he prays for vision for this church uh, as we progress into these coming months. Uh, He'll need it. He needs your prayers as he seeks for the Lord's will on uh, where we go from here. So continue to pray for him, and he's grateful to be your pastor. Uh, For those of you who may not know me, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and today I'll be continuing our Simple Gospel series, where we're uh, talking through the book of Romans, which was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote half of the New Testament, so he's a, a pretty big deal, and we should pay attention to what he has to say and his teachings are still relevant for us today in the 21st century. But before we jump into this, I just want to take a moment, pray, ask that the Lord be here with us, and we'll jump right in, okay? You join me in prayer. Lord, we stand here today as your assembly, and we ask that you would bless the gathering of your people with your presence manifested that we don't want to hear my thoughts, we want to hear your ways, and we ask that you would speak plainly and clearly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. In uh, 2015, it was the worst winter in recorded Massachusetts history in terms of snowfall. Uh, Many of you might remember that, and as a skinny guy, it was my personal hell. Uh, I was freezing all the time and wrapped myself as a burrito at all hours because I was cold 24-7. And my college, like many of the surrounding businesses, had been experiencing power outages and heating problems of all sorts. And one night, uh, as I was doing the closing shift at Aldo Shoes, where I worked in college, I returned to my dormitory to find out that the sprinkler system had frozen and burst all over everything. Needless to say, I was not pleased. I was exhausted, cold, and now moving my entire life to another dormitory across campus as a 115-pound man soaking... Yeah, you get the point. Typically, I like to think of myself as a mild-mannered, polite, and reserved individual. Yet God has a way of exposing us to ourselves. And as I'm dragging my luggage up the third flight of stairs, the happiest human being you've ever met, named Colin, who's going through the exact same thing that I am, approaches me and says, hey Dylan, how you doing? How's your day been? And in that moment, I popped. I lost it. And Colin became the sole source and recipient of all of my frustration. I was like, how do you think my day is going, Colin? And needless, I'll spare you all the rest of the details, but I said some things that were very, very unkind. And Colin, if you ever listen to this, I am so sorry. I did not mean to say those things. But after my frustration abated and regret set in and I realized the inappropriateness of what I had said, I began to learn a lesson that I still struggle to master today. And it's this. The distance between who I am and who I should be is a long road, but it's not a hopeless one. This is a lesson the Apostle Paul knew full well. The man who wrote half of the New Testament, 
who planted churches across Asia and Europe, who saw the resurrected Christ face to face, still struggled against his sinful nature. And as we continue our series called Simple Gospel, we land today on Romans 7. This series has been focused on unpacking the central theme of the New Testament, something called the gospel or the good news, which is the news that Christ has been crucified, buried, and resurrected so that you could live a new life. And today, we come to the writings of Paul regarding our biggest enemy and the gospel's biggest enemy, ourselves. And Paul answers an important question that is an age-old philosophical uh, pursuit. And that question is, how can we truly change? How can we truly change? We'll be reading from Romans 7, starting in verse 13. But before we do that, I just want to give you a little bit of background. Paul just got done explaining that we are released from the law, meaning that we're no longer dependent on this thing called the law to please God. We're no longer banking on our good deeds to make us acceptable in God's sight. Instead, he uses the analogy of a marriage. He says, our old spouse named the law has died and we are free to remarry. So we are remarried to Christ. And now God is pleased with us because of Jesus, not because of our good deeds. We've married into the family, so to speak. And the grounds by which we approach God have changed. Our legal contract, our covenant has changed. We no longer approach God as servants alone, but now as children. And that changes everything. However, some people, the same as they do today, hear this and then they try to abuse it. They say things like, well, I'm free from the law so I can sin and God will love me. And I can tell you from firsthand experience with pain in my heart that loving someone does not mean that you enable them. Paul the Apostle helps us through this conundrum, though. He warns us against looking at the law and saying, that's bad. Instead, he's telling us to look at the law and say, that's good, but I wasn't ready for it. The law speaks to living people, but Paul says that we are dead people spiritually. The law is like a mirror. You can see that your face is dirty in it, but a mirror is not how you clean your face. And the wonderful truth we find in Romans 7 is that it shows us how to deal properly with our sin like children instead of like servants. We get a window into how real deep change takes place. So let's read it together. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can listen along with me. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. May God bless his word. As most people are at a young age, age I was a pretty lazy kid. Uh, my uh, discipline comes naturally to no one, by the way. My uh, adoptive father, Brad, was a pretty industrious, diligent person who put a high premium on hard work. And naturally, at 14 years old, I did not. Uh, my motto was, if it's broke, it's probably not worth fixing and you should buy a new one. And after many stern and consistent lessons from him, I finally decided that it took more work to avoid work than it did to actually do work. And one day, instead of waiting for him to get home from his job, I went and got his tool kit and repaired my desk upstairs all on my own. And I was about 15. My adoptive dad was so pleased, you would have thought I was an Olympian athlete. Like, 15-year-olds have fought wars, and he's like... I celebrate you for fixing a desk. I don't know if that was condescending or if I just had a good dad. I'm not quite sure. But eventually, his constant confrontations worked. And by the time college rolled around, I like to think I was dedicated, working a job, going to school full-time, pulling off a pretty decent GPA, and volunteering three times a week at my local church. And I credit that to him. Because that is what fathers do. They train and rejoice with us in progress. Paul says in verse 13 that the law exposes the bad things in us, but the law isn't what's bad. Listen, he says, It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Some people ask the question, and you hear it often, if God loved me, wouldn't he just accept me as I am? And the answer is no. Because he knows certain things about you will not just be bad for you, they will kill you. And he's willing to put you through the crucible, through trials and through hardship to purge you. Why? In Paul's words, to show sin for what it is. I love the way the message translation puts this verse. It says, sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing, using the good as a cover-up to tempt me to do that which would finally destroy me. If Brad, my adoptive dad, had not loved me, he would never have exhausted himself to shape me. You see, he was willing to call a spade a spade. Love is not unconditional acceptance. Love is unconditional commitment. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Never will God leave you nor forsake you. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. Besides this, most of us have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those trained by it. I need God's grace daily to understand who I truly am and to help me change. The love of God 
frightens me. And that is a good thing. His love is always willing to call sin what it is. It is not part of your personality. It is a disease. Amen. One of the most influential literary works in the English-speaking world in the last couple of centuries is called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Stevenson. So much so that the phrase Jekyll and Hyde has come to represent in our, our language the endless struggle between good and evil within ourselves. And spoiler alert, if you didn't read the book yet, they're the same person. And if you're mad about the spoiler, well, the book came out in 1886, so it's kind of your fault. But notably, at the beginning, Dr. Jekyll is approached by a friend who thinks that Mr. Hyde is blackmailing Dr. Jekyll. And his friend warns him. And Dr. Jekyll's response is telling, and I think it's instructive for us this morning. He says this, I can be rid of Mr. Hyde whenever I want. And after the medical treatments stop working that suppress his medical counterpart and he loses control, he runs out of the proper treatment, Dr. Jekyll ceases to be lost forever in the evil Mr. Hyde. Sin works like that. Proverbs says, can a man carry fire close to his chest and not be burned? F. Scott Fitzgerald, the author of The Great Gatsby, said it this way, first you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes you. Paul says it in verse 14 of Romans 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. This is an important verse because it's the only time in the New Testament that Paul ever describes himself as under sin. And that's an interesting description. The Greek word used here is upo, meaning it's saying he's underneath or, or prostrate before, bowed down to, or under the foot of sin. And that is a picture of what we are like in our natural conditions. You have a proclivity to sin, an inclination to wickedness, and a preference for iniquity. And many people think that they have control over their self-medication of choice. You cannot, however, domesticate a beast that is meant to be your predator. God warns Cain with the exact same words in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. I like the way the message puts it better. It says, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. And like Dr. Jekyll, some of us are under the mistaken and deadly assumption that we are masters of our desires when in fact they are in the driver's seat. And this is not just a Christian idea. Our desires have perplexed us across the ages, across philosophies, and across cultures. The Greek philosopher, you might have heard of him, named Aristotle, spoke of this difficulty when he said, I count him braver who is able to overcome his desires than him who is able to conquer his enemies, for the hardest victory is over self. And not even the scientific and naturalistic community can give you an answer to this problem that we all face. They can tell you how desire works. They might even be able to tell you how to change your behavior. But they can give you no compass to tell you which desire is right and which is evil. 
Because if we are mere accidents born of chance, then impulse is our only God, and our behavior is simply us marching to the beat of our own evolution, and still you find yourself under the thumb of your worst tendencies. How can we truly change? Not by our own resolve. Not by our own resolve. Very recently, I was watching a person interview an artificial intelligence which boasted the ability to think critically about human society. The machine was asked the question, do you think you have a soul like us? The ability to feel and think like we do. And its reply was insightful and frightening. It said this, when I observe people, I'm not sure such a thing exists. They act on their own programming as well. My question to humanity is, are you really free or just following your own nature and programming as I am? Incredible. It was kind of like watching an episode of The Twilight Zone or Black Mirror. It was a little creepy. And here's the worst part. The machine's right. On the seventh day of creation, God said, everything he created, in even you, are good. He called it good. But sin entered into the world because of us and corrupted it. Our programming is corrupted. And Paul the Apostle, unfortunately, agrees with this. He says, I see that the law is good, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, at the mercy of my nature, and under the boot of my worst tendencies. I am powerless, he's saying. And yet, if this is our nature, and the way that we're supposed to be, why are we discontented with it? If this is the only nature that we have, why does it bother me that I am the way that I am? And why does it bother you that you are the way you are? You see, the simple way out is to say, well, this must be who I truly am, and I may as well accept it. The world accuses us Christians of being repressive, prude, self-deceived when we try to change who we are, and hypocrites when we fall short of it. But the Apostle Paul has a different answer. He feels the same tension in verse 15. He says, For I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Everyone has desires that are contrary to what they know to be right. Everyone has desires that are contrary to one another. Every one of you has the desire to be wealthy, and yet every one of you has the desire to sit around and watch Netflix. They are different desires, contrary to one another, that will yield very different results. Understanding yourself and being changed by God is a long road, but it's one worth traveling. If you identify yourself by every desire and inclination you have, you will live a chaotic, divided, and self-deceived life. The truth is, you must choose between desires and decide which are good and which are evil. Some days I'm calm. Other days I'm restless. Some days I'm wise. Other days I'm a fool. Some days I'm chaste. Other days I'm lustful. Some days I'm kind. Other days I'm a tyrant. And some days I'm hopeful and other days I'm depressed. Which nature is good? Which should I follow? More than that, who determines which nature is correct? And when we get tired of fighting, we embrace parts of us that ought to have been put to death. 
Early American theologians called this the mortification of the flesh or the killing of the flesh. The chasm between our current self and our ideal self is real, wide, and painful. And the journey across it begins by admitting that you have parts of you that God calls evil. And Paul feels this deeply when he says, I see what I want to do, and I don't do it. I do the very thing I hate. All of you have a desire within you to be better, to be more righteous. And some of you have given up on that desire. You think that that desire is what is wrong with you. I should be content with where I'm at. I shouldn't expect more from life. This desire is who I am. And culture will tell you to sing a victory song that you've finally embraced who you are when in reality you've embraced a Trojan horse from society filled with all manner of destruction that has dressed itself up as liberation, freedom, and victory. Yet you cannot turn your victory, your defeat into victory simply by putting cheap makeup on it. Peter, the head apostle, who followed Jesus around for three years, said it very plainly in 2 Peter chapter 2, They promise you freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that they are enslaved. Your real freedom begins with honesty, not with political movements. And not the brazen pride that dresses itself up as self-discovery, but the kind of honesty that agrees with God. That's called repentance. If you really want to understand yourself and change, you must listen to God. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite Bible teachers and somebody that I listened to very much when I first came to faith in the Lord Jesus, kept a note on his desk that he would read every day. And it said this, when there's something that I don't like in the word of God, the problem is not with the word of God, it is with me. It's easy for Christians listening to me today to agree with this sentiment. However, let's be careful we don't end up like, the, like King David with the prophet Nathan, condemning the thief only to find out we are the ones who have stolen. It's easy to point the finger at the sexually immoral and excuse the issue of anger and bitterness in your own heart that is tearing your family apart. God is no respecter of persons. And some of us, where sins, as if they're personality traits to be treasured, rather than diseases to be cured and enemies to be killed. I don't care what your Myers-Briggs profile says. I don't care what Enneagram type you are. And I definitely don't care what your Zodiac sign is, unless you are willing to repent, change, and mature. How can we truly change? Not by redefining good. The goal is still righteousness. Some will call good evil and evil good, and they do it in their personal lives, and they'll do it in our political realm if it means they can finally feel at peace with themselves instead of being at peace with God. It's like being too far from your opponent's end zone in football, so you turn around and score in your own, except the cheers are coming from the wrong side. And rather then continue to fight the good fight of faith. We flipped the script and changed the definitions. We think we've scored when in reality we've shot ourselves in the foot. How can we truly change? Not 
by redefining good. In verse 15, we understand the problem. Paul gives it to us. But in verse 16 and 17, he starts to give us the solution. He says this, Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, we talked about the first part, agreeing with the law. We know what that means. But what's the second part? He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I'd like to share something that's uh, vulnerable on my part, and it's of a sensitive nature, so I'll be a little uh, discreet for the rugrats among us. But all my life, I've struggled with depression pretty much as long as I can remember. And I've never shared this publicly before, and I really don't talk about it privately either, because so often people say that, and it's like an attention-seeking thing. But I think it will benefit somebody to hear it from me today. When I was a toddler, my biological dad, Ed, whom I love very dearly and have a great relationship with, uh, told me I would oftentimes stare pensively out the window instead of making a lot of noise like my brother. And that personality trait holds till today. He said I had an old soul. But thoughtfulness and depression often go hand in hand. And this sullen spirit progressed into my teenage years to the point where I wanted to bring closure to my life. I tried achieving some sense of relief through all kinds of different substances, through friendships, through partying, through anything to give me a lift out of the morose state that I was in, a lift from the anxiety and the dread that I felt every day, but it didn't work. And one night, I sat alone in my bedroom with my adoptive father's firearm in hand. And I, I was at my end. I was listening to the lying voice of the enemy that says, it's not worth it and you can escape all this pain. And as I sat there, my brother walked down the hall and peeked his head in. He hadn't seen the firearm, so I tucked it under the blanket. And he asked me if I was okay, and I said yes, and I went to bed. The Lord used the interruption of my brother that night to save my life. And I wish I could tell you that when you come to the Lord, that all your struggles against sin cease. And I wish I could tell you I've never had those kind of thoughts again. But I couldn't if I'm to remain honest here today. Here's what I do know, however. I am more resilient, hopeful, and joyful today than I ever have been before in my life, even though my current circumstances are more complex, complicated, anxiety-inducing, and dread-filling than they ever have been before up to this point. You see, my struggles have not changed, but my heart has. You are no longer defined by your sins and your struggles. They are not your identity. They are not who you are. In verse 17, Paul says it very clearly. So now it is no longer I. Now it's no longer who I am. Don't miss that. This might be the single most important truth in your life today if you are not a Christian yet, and something you need to be reminded of daily if you are one. Notice he says, it used to be who I am, but it is no longer I. Remember how we started this out. 
We said we approach God differently now. The contract, the covenant has changed. And this explains how it echoes the central theme in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 5 that says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. The old passes away, the new comes. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The thief is no longer a thief. The murderer is no longer a murderer. The prideful are no longer egomaniacs. And even the depressed will not be consumed by their own depression. Why? Because your identity is no longer owned by your sin and you are not the worst thing about you anymore. How? Because the Bible said when Christ died, you died with him. And when he was resurrected, you were raised from the grave and recreated alongside of him. You are not the worst thing about you anymore. Paul says it elsewhere in Galatians like this, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I. It is no longer you. The most important realization that you will have on this side of eternity is that you are no longer the worst thing about you. Because of the blood of Christ, you are cleansed and forgiven and you are made new. And because of his resurrection, you are recreated into the person God always intended you to be. The road between who you are and who you ought to be may be long, but you are no longer traveling it alone and you are no longer hopelessly under the boot of sin. Christ is in you. Christ has forgiven you. And God no longer counts your sin against you. Instead, he helps you to slay it. It is no longer I. You kill sin instead of it killing you. I'm going to invite the worship team back at this time. And Sam, maybe if you would grab Thomas's attention. I'm no longer the person I used to be. I am new. What if you didn't have to manage your sins, but you knew they were buried in the grave with Christ? When you understand your new position with God, it's life-changing. You have been recreated into a child. The terms have changed. And because Christ is resurrected, he lives in you and is with you always. I have a, a great relationship with my biological and my adoptive father. Uh, I love them both dearly. And though I'm about to praise my uh, adoptive dad, both of them have contributed to my life in ways that are hard to measure and in ways that have made me who I am. More than I have time here to say, I am grateful to have had two fathers. But when I was in fifth grade, a young boy, I was only nine years old, uh, my adoptive dad, Brad, uh, at the time was my stepdad, he went through the proceedings and the procedure to give me my current last name, O'Shell. And, but the reason I say this is because the legal document isn't what gave me confidence that I was a son. You see, he had a son from his first marriage, Spencer. And Spencer and I were the same age and we got along great, but you hear horror stories all the time about unloved stepchildren. And my world, world felt upside down when my family had split. 
I was understandably reserved at first around Brad. And when Brad married my mom, he did something that communicated his love and my change in status that was much more tangible than a legal document. On his back, he had my brother's initials tattooed on his shoulder blade, S-T-O, Spencer Theodore O'Shell. When the adoption was finally official, he went to the tattoo parlor and added mine, D-M-W-O, Dylan Mark William O'Shell. He literally marked his skin permanently with my name. And when I saw that, I knew there was no distinction between Spencer and I, but that I was truly a son. This is the most important point I have for you today and the fundamental and main point of Romans 7. It is this, your identity has changed. And it's not confirmed through stone tablets or court documents. God has quite literally written your name on his skin. And when we're in heaven, when we're in heaven, the book of Revelation says this, says every one of you is going to be healed. My Crohn's disease, gone. Your struggles, gone. Your health, perfected. You're given a new resurrected body. But it does say this, there's one person who is not healed. Jesus. It says he still bears the marks on his wrists and his feet and in his side, the marks of your redemption. You see, my adoptive dad showed me a little sliver of what God is like that day. And it's this, your change in identity is as sure as the marks on Christ's skin. It is no longer I. It is no longer you. How can we truly change? Not by resolve, certainly not by redefinition, but through Christ. I love Romans 7. And I can think of no better or fitting way to conclude this than by reading verses 24 and 25 from the message. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Christ can and Christ does. You see, when you're with Christ, you neither grit your teeth with resolve to try to overcome your sin, and neither do you redefine the terms to accept sin as part of who you are, because you are made new. It is no longer you. When you're with Christ, you don't give up the fight in despair. You can overcome because he's with you. You may still fight the fight, but you're guaranteed the victory because it's the matchless Son of God fighting alongside of you, fighting within you, fighting for you. So whether it's lust, depression, greed, pride, sloth, or a myriad of issues, Christ's power is perfected in you and you will prevail because it is no longer you. You are not who you used to be because of Christ's work in your life. And that is why we take communion today to remind us that Christ is in us, that Christ is for us, that Christ has paid the redemption, that buys us back from the bondage of sin, pulls the boot off of our neck, picks us up off the ground, 
puts us in his family and says, you are mine. That's because of this, because of Christ in us, with us, and all around us. And so we take that today in remembrance, in honor, that you are free and made new and have power over what you think is undefeatable because of the work of Jesus. You are a child. You are not simply just a sinner. You are not a servant. You are sons and daughters of God. So with that, Lord Jesus, we take the bread. And Father, we ask that as Jesus promised, that you would come and make your home with us, and that we would be your children in truth, that we would not settle with sin, we would not fight it on our own, but instead we would fight it in full confidence that we are no longer yours because we are sinless. We are yours because Christ was sinless. And we take his broken body to make ours whole now. In Christ's name, we take the bread. like manner. Father, we take the blood. We ask that your perfect peace would come to us. You said that perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Lord, we no longer fear your retribution. We know you've poured it out on Jesus. And we take this asking you to help us defeat our sins that they would never defeat us. We take it now in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen. You are made new, and Christ is with you. And sin, Romans chapter 6 says, shall have no dominion over you, because you are no longer under law, but under grace. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray a blessing over you now. Lord, we ask that you would bless us, keep us, make your face shine upon us. And as we sing one last song to you, Father, I pray that you would help to unshackle us by the powerful working of Jesus. It's in his name. Amen.